Titus O'Reilly here, once again annoying you with our shameless plug for Bazaar plus our membership program, More Mick and Me. Simply go to the link in the show notes. It's Sports Bazaar. I'm going to kick back and enjoy this. Some of these stories you would say that cannot be true. The hunt for the weirdest. It's a real rollercoaster ride, this one, isn't it? <laughs> it makes Game of Thrones look like a sitcom. <laughs> Strangers. There you go. He's on another level. What are you doing? There's a lot of our stories that start with someone <laughs> fleeing moneylenders. Most unbelievable. This is a car crash. Stories to ever occur. I'll stop this right now. <laughs> it's just carnage. That is the densest bit of mayhem. So many <laughs> subplots in this story. In the world of sport. I think we're learning that embarrassment is not something. Sports Bazaar. A naked fan ran onto the field and slid into second base. <laughs> no, I don't drink water. I cannot stand drinking water. I am the president of everybody. I am the president of the whole FIFA. <laughs> Opened his mouth and a sparrow flew out. It's time for the leaders of the hunt. It's really simple. Get there early, get the good back. It's Titus O'Reilly and Mick Malloy. Welcome to the latest episode of Sports Bazaar. My good self, Mick Malloy, doing the heavy lifting, Tyus O'Reilly. I'm in a hurry here because I need to get to the second part <laughs> of our Le Mans special. And we've got to Le Mans. Finally, set the scene. Where are we? Who's on board? There's well, two, we, two of the great characters. We uh, met Duncan Hamilton. So Dunk. He loved to drink. A lot of fun to go He's out crashing with. everything. He put Crashes his hands everything. on. Yep. And we've got Tony Rolfe. Stole a bus. Stole a bus. Bought a bus. <laughs> yeah, technically yeah. bought the bus. Bought the bus. Great character. Got overtaken by his own car <laughs> yeah. with no driver. <laughs> with no driver. <laughs> and then you've got Tony Rolt, who's this war hero. Incredible. Part of an historical event. Came up with the glider at Colditz, escaped from prison of war camp seven times. Yes. You know, so these, these are, guys have combined They're, both, they're great forces friends. And they're about to what? Launch on what? They start racing together and they find out that they're both very good at these long-distance races. What makes them suited to the long-distance races? I, the difference with long-distance races is it's the focus over hours and hours. It's sure. much. It's an endurance race. It's keeping speeds up consistently over a long period of time. Yeah. It's less the sort of the constant overtaking and all that. It's more the ability to right. really drive a car. Drill down. Yeah, Get know how it. to handle it. <laughs> so. All right, a test of concentration and stamina and all that stuff. All that sort of stuff. So. In 1950, they decide it's time for us to take on Le Mans. Like, this is the big one, 24-hour race. We'll have to do an episode on the history of the race, the Le Mans sure. race. But it's this, you race for 24 hours straight. So it's through the night. It's a big endurance event. It's yeah. tiring. The teams are two drivers. They swap in and out. So you um, race Around the clock. Yep. yep. So they actually, in 1950, they get their own car built to do it. So they have a, a specially made Nash Healy. So, you know, you've heard of an Austin Healy. Yes, this I have. Healy was one of the things that it was called a Nash Healy. And they enter their first one and they finish fourth on their first attempt in 1950. So yeah. everyone's like very impressed by this. In 1951, they enter again, same car, they come six. So already they're sort of showing. They're thereabouts. We're not bad at this. So in 1952, Tony Rolt's invited to join the Jaguar team. And this is when cars were made in Britain. By Britain. By British people. Britain, yeah. And so when Jaguar were racing, their big competitors at this point, especially were Ferrari. Yeah, Ferrari. And this is literally with Enzo Ferrari running it. 
It was really Italy versus England. Yeah. And, and when did Ford famously have a crack at this? Because I think that, that's the 60s. That's the 60s. 70s, right? Yeah, yeah, later on. Yeah, Enzo so, used to turn up in like the royal box. Didn't he? Yeah, and he'd sit there. And, yeah, exactly. Yeah, okay. So this is really is Britain versus Italy. So it's, it's very – so the race for Jaguar is like being called up to – I mean, it's like if you're playing cricket or soccer or something and being called up to the national team, right? Yeah. You're not yeah. racing for yourself. You're racing sure. for Jaguar. So they're racing for Jaguar. Or Tony gets invited. And um, partly you're driving because he's proving himself. He races a few times in Jaguars and he, at one point he actually laps um, Sterling Moss, who's their young up-and-coming Jesus. driver. Right. And they all say – this guy's good, we'll hire you. Yeah. And they say, you need a co-driver. Who do you want us to get as your co-driver, you know, uh, if you join Jaguar? And he says, I want Duncan. And they say, Duncan, you must be mad. <laughs> because his nickname at this point is Drunken Duncan. <laughs> <laughs> That's not an ideal nickname for someone behind the wheel of a high-performance vehicle. Exactly. And Tony Rolt's <laughs> got this kind of natural sort of English upper class grace and, you know, polish because he went to Eton, he was a went to Sandhurst as an officer. Yeah. He's unflappable. He's seen it all, you know. Where Duncan's this, you know, Irish background, big beard, drinking all the time. <laughs> but they they get on like a house on sure. fire, right? But that's that, so Jaguar like this is weird. He's not very Jaguar. He's not like the instant one you would right. think, right? But He's also at the same time a true racing driver because yeah. he drives hard and he parties hard. Sure. And Tony Rolt does too but does it with this air of sort of grace to it, which Duncan, <laughs> Duncan is. Tony's more, not, more discreet than Duncan. Tony's Duncan, not Duncan. the one with the head through the wall. He's not the one with the bus. Being, you he's know, a bloke pulling him out. He's on pulling him out. They're in. 1952 is their first one and they drive the Jaguars but the Jaguars at this point have got some serious overheating problems and all of the cars that they enter, they enter three teams, don't finish. So that's a bit of a thing. Which brings us to the 1953 race. And this is a famous race. And yes. This is the one I was talking about in the last episode that they, this has gone down as a legendary race for a whole right. range of reasons. Okay. So Duncan and Tony are back in one of the cars. This is the legendary Jaguar C-Type. Car, so people would have heard of the C yep. type and the D type. This is the C type. Now, the reason the C type such an important car is they had Dunlop disc brakes. So in most cars, in up until this point, all cars up to this point had drum brakes, right? Yes. And all that really means, in, unlike now, most cars have disc brakes. This is a huge advantage for Jaguar and their C type. What it means is, from the very beginning, the disc brakes don't erode; they last for the whole race. Sure. Where the drum brakes, every time you use, you use yeah. them, they get a bit worn down. Mm-hmm. And so in a 24-hour endurance race... It becomes a factor. It becomes a factor. So the Jaguars know they can go full pelt on the brakes from the start and it's not going to matter. Nowhere in tear. Where the other cars are all Managed. easing it. So it's a huge issue. And Jaguar have really... Are they the only team that have the disc They're the first to have so This is an innovation. Innovation. And it's in the what C-type Jaguar. Yeah. So they're like, this is great. They've got three teams entering Jaguar. Jaguar have targeted this Le Mans race as going to be their fit. Yeah. So they, they've got the disc brakes. They've got three cars. Sterling Moss is in one with another guy called Peter Walker. They're in the lead C-type. Then Hamilton, Tony Rolton are next. And then there's a third car uh, driven by Peter Whitehead and Ian Stewart. So they're the three teams. Their biggest competition is going to be Ferrari's uh, 340 mm's, which is an innovative Ferrari, much more powerful. It doesn't have the brake advantage, 
but is a more uh, it's, faster, a it's a faster car. Um, and the world champion Alberto Ascari is driving for them. So they are looking at the it's Ferrari versus Jaguar as the big Ferrari confident. Are they are they going in kind of they're uh, favorites? Con- they're just favorites. Jaguar uh, are seen as right up there too. All right. So Hamilton and Rolt, they're all doing the qualifying and the practices. Duncan sets a lap record unofficially in the <laughs> qualifying. So they're all going, this is pretty good. We're, we're going to go. Jaguar also thrilled because of their six drivers. All of them have been on the podium in the past yes. except for Duncan and Tony. They're the only two that haven't. Well, that needs so to be they're corrected. The third, they're the third kind of team, right? Yeah, making up the numbers at Jaguar. Yeah. So they set a great qualifying time. They're looking really good. Sterling Moss in his car, he's having some mechanical issues. Okay. And he wants to try a new differential setup part of the car, different setup on the car. So he says, oh, they have a practice car and he goes, can we quickly change the practice car to the setup I want? I'm going to try a lap in that and see what time I get. Sure. So they go, sure. What happens is that car by mistake has the same number as Hamilton and Rolt's car and it's against the rules to have two cars with the same number and having them on the track. It's a very technical minor problem. But Surely this doesn't result in some kind of disqualification. Well, the idea is it could be read that they're trying to do a sneaky thing, yeah. but there weren't. It was just an absolute oversight. Like two players on the ground were yeah, in the, the same, same number. Was, yeah, you go, hang on, yeah. whoa. What's the point of a number? Yeah, if you're right. going to duplicate it. So, and this is the sort of thing these days, if that happened, someone would get fired. Ferrari actually complain about it, the, the organisers. The organisers come down hard on it and they disqualify Hamilton and Rolt. <laughs> what? And Hamilton and Rolt are... No, they've done nothing wrong. Furious that this has happened because it's a cock-up. It's an administrative... Sterling Moscow. Yeah, and it's not even Sterling's fault. He said, I want to try a different step. They said, sure, someone should have had a car with a different number on it, right? How did Duncan take it? Not well. They're like absolutely pissed. They know that they're just the French that run at it. The club is just a real stickler. For real stickler. They, they're like, we're done. How's right. Ferrari making a complaint? Yeah, so they're like, we're out. So they're there and they're, they've taken their wives over in that. So they say. Very disappointing. You know what? Let's just turn this into a holiday. We're in France. Stuff it. So they go to the bar <laughs> and start drinking. Plan B. Plan B. So they go and start drinking in their usual way, right? So they're in the bar, they're having a great time. Their wives give up on them halfway through the night and say, we're moving in together in the hotel room. We're going to be in one hotel room together yeah. if we want to go to bed. You two, you when you finish drinking, you can both bunk in the other room. You're in the right? drunk tank. You're in the drunk tank, basically. And so their wives are furious with them and they said, <laughs> he says, the wives didn't bother with that because Tony and I never saw our bedroom. <laughs> they drink till dawn, right? Good on them. drink. So after drinking all night, oh, they no. go to Gruber's restaurant in the morning, which is near the thing, and they go and have a coffee and they're sitting there and he says, we're so ill, miserable, dejected, we're sitting there. No. And a Mark 7 Jaguar drives up and William Lyons is one of the top team guys who oh, no. hurries over and says, great news, no. boys. No. <laughs> no. You're racing. <laughs> Got some good news, boys. Oh, You're going to be thrilled to hear Jesus. this. I've paid you 25,000 franc fine. And you're back in the race. <laughs> no. Yeah. Oh, wow. They've been up all night drinking and haven't yeah. slept. And it's a 24-hour race. This is not the perfect preparation. This is the opposite of perfect preparation. <laughs> this is the worst. And they're really hungover, right? Like they're not 
like they'd probably have to say no, wouldn't they? They look at their clock. It's ten a.m. The starters' flag falls in six hours, so uh, they got, go home for a nap. So they hadn't had any sleep, and they had twenty four hours of raising their head. So they go and they quickly order some more black coffee, <laughs> and they ask if there's a Turkish bath in town. <laughs> We're going to sweat this out. Coffee, stat, stat, Turkish baths. Yeah, <laughs> Jesus. Before they risk their life, this is incredible. So they're like, well, let, let's try that, right? Let's try that. Um, <laughs> they're told that there's not a Turkish bath in town, so they go back to the sort of hotel slash chateau that they're all the drivers are put up with, where their wives. So he he said. We went back and had hot bars. We drank more back coffee. We listened to our wives, who I think were telling them, <laughs> wow, have been you guys a mouthful. are coffee, absolute, you idiots. You've been out drinking. You've only you got slept. yourselves to blame. You've only got yourself to blame. He says, by 2 o'clock in the afternoon, after all this black coffee and the hot bars and everything, he said, by 2 o'clock in the afternoon, we felt dreadful. <laughs> no. So Duncan says, I knew I could not race feeling as I did. So... Common sense, Mick prevails. He says, "That's mature." He says, "I knew I couldn't race feeling yeah. this bad, right?" Yeah. So, no, good call. Uh, he said, "There's only one thing for it. I ordered hair of the dog." <laughs> <laughs> like, I love. He says, "There's only one thing for it. Not I said we couldn't race. It's we'll have a thing." So he said, "I ordered a double brandy." <laughs> this is hilarious. I immediately felt better. I'm good to go. I'm good. I'm, I'm good. back. Tony tried the same medicine with equally happy results. So he said, by four o'clock when it's ready to kick off, we both felt fine. He said we felt all right. Yeah, great. I think he might have thought he felt fine. I'm not <laughs> sure if uh, – he said he didn't. we didn't drink very much. It was just a medicinal pick-me-up. I understand that. I, I thought you would understand <laughs> that of all people. So now, they're back. Remarkably, Hamilton's then strapped into the start. He's so the Duncan first leads off. In. His, yeah, Duncan Hamilton's the first one in. So he's strapped in. Duncan's strapped into the car. And this is a huge race for Jaguar. And What are the is. shifts? How long do they kind of do each? It's At this point in Le Mans, it's one guy raced like 17 hours and almost one. And then, so you make but, it up. Yeah. But other times it's like every couple of hours you'll swap, you know, because it's pretty intense, you know. Like you're racing at speed. The idea is to both drivers to keep the speed up as long as, as possible. So, so the, would they flip the coin to see who needs a sleep first? Is, <laughs> is that the, what they've yeah, done? Who can, who's the closest to walking in a straight line? Who, who needs the lie down? <laughs> so in attempt to sober up the pit crew, have coffee at every pit stop. <laughs> so every time they pull in, as well as, as well as doing the... Fuel in the tank. Fuel in the tank. And check, coffee for the, the tires, hey, coffee for the driver. Keep like, this wow. was... a. Uh, this is working well until Duncan says that he drank so much coffee that his arms started to twitch uncontrollably. <laughs> he's developed a tick. Yeah, he's like, I've had way too much coffee. So the only thing for it would be more alcohol. So then he would have brandy to fend off the looming hangover while he pulled into the pit. Unbelievable. There's right? a guy out in the track drinking brandy. They both were and he says the brandy helped my arm twitching. Right, he also stopped the room from spinning and from me vomiting. Jeez! Oh, so, he, so anyone listening to this who's battled a hangover, 
No, you know what this is like, right? And he's yeah. he's, he's in a kind of hell, right? Like he's going to hell. And so is Tony, right? They're it's both like me doing... one hour into a three-hour breakfast radio show when I haven't <laughs> when I haven't been to sleep the night yeah. before. There's a long way to go. <laughs> there must be a moment where you go, "Oh, this is a bad idea. This is a bad idea." Yeah, and radio is not the worst shift. I remember, mate. The... Compared to what driving a race car around Le Mans, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Right. Uh, like no yeah. one dies if you Here's you Copperhead know. Road from Steve Earl. <laughs> like take a four minute nap. Right. It's not even in the same now on radio you can't pick all the songs as like you used to be able to often. It's decided no, but it must have been many occasions where a hungover DJ just goes and here's a Bohemian Rhapsody followed by, <laughs> by Stairway to Heaven. Oh, someone's just had a big night. Everyone's longest. <laughs> We're doing long songs of yeah. the 70s. Yeah, anyway. We're going to open up with a 40-minute music marathon. <laughs> uh, while this was happening, one thing must the alcohol probably helped mm. is a bird struck their windscreen and broke Duncan's nose while How he's driving. How did it break his nose? Went he... through the windscreen. Oh, through the windscreen. And hit him in the face at speed. Like he's going. Who needs a coffee? He's going to 100... get your attention to <laughs> He's going 130 miles per hour at this point. <laughs> he, he's had a couple. That would take you by, you wouldn't see that coming. No, you would not see What you. the? <laughs> Suddenly, so that broke his nose. So he's hung over. <laughs> the windscreen stuffed. A bird's broken his nose. Yeah. Which, okay. that on its own is a bad day. Even if you're as sober as a judge, a remember, bird breaking your nose. Remember Fabio? They got the bird got oh, Fabio on the, on, on the roller coaster. Yeah, turned up a bloody mess at the end of it. That bird knew what it was doing. <laughs> that bird was it was a that was a suicide mission. I thought that hair was a nest. <laughs> it was a kamikaze. Starting to I'll do it. <laughs> Take one for the team. So he's driving along. Bird strikes him. He breaks his nose. He keeps Good going boy. anyway. So he's hung over into a broken nose. And broken windscreen. Broken windscreen. And that's slowing the car down a bit because the, of course, the so wind resistance. Like, and so Tony's driving too. They're taking turns. Like So you get out of the car, let the other driver in. You're not both sitting in the car. Sure. So, you know, so that's Can they replace on. the windscreen when they get to a pit stop? The or? bit I read is said that, no, it was like that that's was it. a problem that's they had to deal with for the rest got. of the thing and the wind resistance was annoying. Sterling Moss in one of the other Jaguars, he's leading for much of the 24 hours. But the, You know why? He's sober. <laughs> <laughs> the Ferraris are really pushing a fast pace too, so okay. they're right behind. So no one can slow down. It's full yeah, like it's, we're cracking everyone's up. going to. Hamilton and Rolt have this idea, which might have come from them both being incredibly drunk, is <laughs> when it gets dark or in the morning fog, and that's the thing about racing a 24-hour race, right. you've got to deal with all the different conditions. Incredible. It's not like just like 3 o'clock to 5 o'clock. Sure. In the afternoon, it's like all through the night and then morning. Yeah. That's when people slow down a bit. They said, when everyone else slows down, we're not slowing this down. This is our strategy. This is our strategy. So at night, we're going to keep the speed and up when the it's whole the time. The foggier it is, doesn't the matter. We're still we keeping it up. So finally, towards the very end, they take the lead. Wow. The Ferraris have some gearbox problems and have to pit. Yeah. They're ahead of Sterling Moss and they cross <laughs> the line. By four laps ahead of Sterling four Moss and laps. Peter Walker. <laughs> you know what they need? And win Le Mans. A celebratory drink. This what? is incredible. Yeah, so they win. Now what a victory. They're the first car ever to win Le Mans with an average speed greater than 100 miles per hour. With a broken windscreen, with and, a busted nose yep. and drunk. 
they said that this is what they do. Over what the whole, a story. Yeah, for every four and a half minute lap, because they kept driving up so fast at night and the fog, they only lost two to three seconds a lap yeah. slower than in daytime. Yes. When Rolt said later on the other runners slowed in darkness by about 10 seconds per lap. So this yeah. is how fast these guys were going. Wow. So this is not – it's an amazing victory. They didn't just win. They they set this record of first one to average more than 100 miles per it's hour. It's for the ages. They and they've never the even podiumed before. Never even podiumed before. So they're suddenly on the podium on number one. Enzo will be furious. <laughs> yeah, they're all furious. So there was only one way for them to celebrate. <laughs> they'd stayed up all Friday night. They'd driven all Saturday yes. night. It's now Sunday night. They're cracking champagne on the podium. They're probably had a drink at that. They go to a local bar and stay up all night and don't sleep the Sunday night. <laughs> this is the greatest sporting story. Duncan says, in the case of Tony myself, neither has had any sleep for 48 hours. It is amazing what good cognac and the will to achieve and ambition can accomplish. Needless to say, we celebrated that evening. It was in the early hours of Monday morning before either Tony or myself got to bed. We were very tired and happy men. You know what they need? A Turkish bath. <laughs> they need a Turkish bath. This fix everything. This is an extraordinary story. And Jaguar, they did it for their country. They did it for the country. It was a famous victory. It was also, who passed away recently, Queen Elizabeth. It's her coronation year. One of the first people to congratulate them as the newly crowned Queen Elizabeth. Queen Elizabeth. So they are... Big heroes. Really. That is fantastic. So a week after this, only one week after yeah. he's won, Duncan then takes off to go to the Portuguese Grand Prix in Oporto and he is leading in the first corner of the race when he goes off and crashes into an electricity pylon. So the Jaguar actually cartwheels, it throws him out of the car and he lands in a tree. He hangs upside down for about a minute before falling down on the side of the circuit. And he moved his legs off the road just as a Ferrari raced by, almost losing his entire legs, right? Yes. He's very beaten up. So he's taken to the hospital for an emergency operation in Portugal. And he wakes up and he looks up and he's naked and he can see himself in the reflection Fliction. on the light. Well, he's not under anesthetic. He wakes, comes to, and he can see he's on an operating table and his like, chest is open and he's really not Whoa. in good shape, right? And he's a bit freaked out about it. And he says he's mesmerized because there's a surgeon leaning open his open chest cavity, smoking a cigar that has a very large cigarette ash. And he's worried it's going to fall into his chest. <laughs> he's like, what's going on? What? He desperately tries to say, tell them that they need he needs water, but they didn't understand him. He says, fortunately, a small boy who spoke English turned up and I was able to make him understand what I wanted. Yes. Now... This is the level of this hospital where a small Portuguese boy wanders in. <laughs> you got a water boy in surgery. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he can now at least through the boys speak in English. So he says, you know, can I have some water? And he notices that there with the surgeon are two nuns. The nuns say you can't drink the water, it's contaminated. Um, but you can have port <laughs> to numb the pain. And he says, okay, I'll have port. And... <laughs> So he has some port, but he can't get over the idea that this guy's cigar ash. Yeah, yeah, and he looks like he's about to open him up and he's already like gaping a hole yeah. from the crash. And it's two inches long. He's going, it's going to open in my chest. And he goes, luckily the surgeon was a tidy man. Just before the ash fell off, he tapped the ash into a metal bowl one of the nuns was holding in case I felt sick. 
<laughs> casually leans over and it's unbelievable. He says, "Why is it dark in here?" To the surgeon, and he says, "Because the pylon you crashed into fed this hospital's electricity." <laughs> this is not his first running with an electric pylon. Exactly. Too, I exactly. I told you he crashed so often. I haven't even put in like. It's probably like 15 other crashes on track and off track. I didn't, I thought about putting them all in. We would be, this would be an eight week series if I just described every crash he was in. What, right? what about this surgeon? Yeah. Scalpel, uh, <laughs> ashtray. ashtray. <laughs> what kind of hospital are we dealing with? So he says, well, you crashed into the, you know, you crashed into the pile. That's the reason there's no electricity. The reason we're sitting here in the dark yeah. and operating in the dark is because you took out our electricity. So then Dungan says, why aren't I anaesthetized? Yeah, he that's says, a good point. Yeah, he says, because the anaesthetist went to watch the motor race you were in. <laughs> Have another port. <laughs> so they're just giving him port. So he then says, what are these nuns doing? <laughs> <laughs> I was wondering when we were getting to that. <laughs> what are these nuns doing here? And he says, they had to give you as much port as it takes to numb your pain. Or the last rites, whichever comes first. Oh wow! So when he gets operated on, he had he'd broken nine of his ribs, his neck, his jaw, and his collarbone, plus a bunch of other like unbelievable things. The guy actually did not a bad job on him, and then yeah. he gets moved to the local British hospital that's not far, and he's looked after quite well. But he was banged sure. up a bit. There was an award set up. And it's called the Motor 2400 Trophy, which had been in existence for many years. It was an award in perpetuity. It had never been awarded. Someone set it up to say whoever first averages 100 miles per hour for the full 24-hour race yes, wins this award. This trophy. So Tony and Duncan have won this award at Le Mans. Great. So they receive these special clocks, which he says is one of his most treasured possessions. It's a clock. It's a specially designed clock. It's made by a guy, Charles Frodsham, who's... They're clockmakers to the kings of England. So this is a real proper. Sure. When the guy who runs this award, it's run by the Motor magazine, and it's been around. It's sort of like a challenge, like the first to do this. Yeah, gets you this get award. it. Yeah. This, is, this is your. It's And it's only ever awarded once. They've now won it. Yeah. And so it was like the first to reach Everest sort of so thing. So the four-minute you know? mile. Yeah. So they've done that. So the engraver who's engraving it says, what names do you want on these clocks? And he says, oh, Tony Rolt yeah. uh, on one of them. The other one name is Duncan Hamilton. And the guy laughs and goes, Duncan Hamilton, how can he still be alive? <laughs> and the guy goes, what do you mean by that? And he goes, I served under him in Africa. <laughs> There's just no way Duncan is, is still alive. Because he's just known for the, all these things, right? It's just laughing. <laughs> yeah, they all the laugh. Engra- the, the engravings are kind of shaky because <laughs> yeah. the guy's laughing as he engraves his name into the trophy. Yeah, so people are just constantly awed that Duncan's made it through, you know. Like Tony's the sensible one, Duncan's the one that's yeah. just. So not long after this, Duncan actually crashes off the track, right? Right. He's not injured, no one's injured, but he has a little bingle. Yeah. But he's in Europe when it happens. The foreign press get misinformed about this and they report it as Duncan Hamilton has been killed in a what? in a car accident, right? And it's broadcast. A news agency picks this up out of the local papers and it's broadcast everywhere. So everyone thinks he's dead. And he says, Angela, his wife and I had quite a job convincing people that I was still alive. Because <laughs> it's very believable. everyone instantly went, we always knew this was that our was Duncan. That was bound to happen. This was how Duncan was going to go. 
They all thought it. Same so the, guy's engraving his tombstone. Exactly. Going, oh, finally. I told you when I was doing the watch. Anyway, so he starts receiving all these condolence letters oh, to his wife. So Duncan starts answering them. <laughs> he goes, well, this is great. Yeah. This is hilarious. Someone writes, you know, after all to his wife, we now know he's in a better place. And Duncan goes, I am in a better place. I'm in London. <laughs> and I hope to see you soon. <laughs> Fantastic. In 1954, they race Le Mans again after all this happening and they come close to winning. They come second. They lose to Ferrari, but they come second. So yep. suddenly they've come first and second. This time, I think they were fairly sober. Yeah. So yeah. maybe a few drinks sort of pushed them over. I think the we top. know the difference. 1955, Le Mans is well known. Their car was not working that well and it was they were going to have to pull out. But this was the year that the race is marked by a terrible tragedy. A Mercedes flew into spectators on the pit straight and 80 people were killed. Oh, wow. Like huge okay, yeah. in the history of me. This was so shocking to Rolt. They didn't finish this race. Yep. He had a young family and he's got this really big engineering business that's taking off that does cars. We'll, we'll talk about that in a sec. But he decides Enough. and his wife sees this and so does he. They go, you're done. We're done. He pulls out. Duncan doesn't pull out because I think Duncan sees crashes as just Part, parcel, part, parcel of, the, of life. Another day at the office. Another day. So Tony goes off and f- retires. Um, he's still a member of the Jaguar Works team, but he retires from all of it. He starts to work on his engineering thing. They start to work on a new technology called four-wheel drive and anti-lock braking. Jeez. And he's ahead of everyone on this. Ferguson Tractors, one of the original tractors, yes. uh, Harry Ferguson set up. He talks to Rolt and Rolt's doing them in proper sports cars, yeah. but he's saying this would be good for tractors four-wheel drive. Yes. And so he starts doing four-wheel drive technology yeah. in with Ferguson on their tractors and a whole bunch of things. He makes a heap of money off this, right? He builds an F1 car, the Ferguson P99. It's the first ever four-wheel drive F1 car, which leads to all-wheel drive and all this. It starts dominating the Indianapolis 500 and all these sort of things, the turbo Indy cars. Are all amazing. He's behind all of it. Ferguson Development, which is a partnership he has with Ferguson Tractors, it finishes up. Rolt founds FF Developments, and it's doing a lot of converting cars, vans, and ambulances to four-wheel drive. And during the eighties, all the major automotive manufacturers suddenly see the advantages of all-wheel drive. And who is the expert on it? It's this FF Developments with Tony at the head of it. And so. He starts supplying and becoming a major technology partner for Ford, Chrysler, Audi, Fiat, and General Motors. Wow. In 1994, the business is sold to a company called Ricardo, and they use this technology and Rolt's experience, and suddenly all the Audi sport cars that had dominated all the 24-hour races in in the 2000s all use this technology that Rolt had come up with, Mm -hmm. and he retires a very wealthy man. This is, after all, a man who designed a glider to get out of cold Exactly. So So this this life of his has been a ripper. A ripper, so all that sort of stuff. 1956, coming back, Duncan hasn't retired. So Tony's gone off and done that, and that's his pathway. Duncan hasn't, but he so he wins the 1956 Reams uh, 12-hour race for Jaguar, um, which is another great uh, win. But in it, he was coming second and the lofty Hamilton, the team uh, manager for Jaguar, says over the – we've got first three spaces, Calm positions. 
Don't go fast, no overtaking. Right? Oh, dear. So Duncan overtakes <laughs> and wins, right? Because okay. he's like, come on, I can go faster while, while we're doing this. Lofty England comes in and sacks him on the spot for disobeying team orders and he's out of Jaguar. They remained friends anyway. He says, I did not blame Lofty for what he'd done. He had to do his duty by Jaguars as he saw it. I was technically guilty of indiscipline and he was enforcing his authority as he had every right to do. Two hours after being sacked by Jaguar, Enzo Ferrari rocks in and goes, hey, do you want to join Ferrari? <laughs> so he suddenly drives Ferraris. An the, incredible story. He drives Ferraris at the 956 Le Mans. He didn't finish the car breakdown in that one. He came sixth driving a Jaguar at the 57 Le Mans, yep. uh, his own car this time, not a Jaguar that he owned. 1958's his last appearance and it failed to finish, but he sustained quite bad injuries in the 956 Le Mans. But that meant he had raced in nine Le Mans races, including winning one, coming second and some very good finishes and making him one of the great Le Mans drivers of all time. Yeah. But after that injury in the 58 Le Mans, he decides it's probably time for me to retire. Also, the death of his close friend Mike Hawthorne, who's a world champion yep. racer, he died in a normal road accident and this is where Duncan decided, okay, enough. that's enough. He sets up a famous business that is still going strong today which sells classic sport cars. And if you go on this site, the sport cars on there are just amazing, like historical yes. and all sorts of things. In retirement, he got to know King Faisal, who was the king of Saudi Arabia. <laughs> he called him one day, King Faisal out of nowhere, and says, Duncan, I'd love to see a Jaguar D-type. Could you bring one over? Could you bring one over? King Faisal's in London and he says, bring the car to Claridge's where I'm staying. Yes. We'll have a look. So he shows up and the king comes and looks and says, this is great, and says, let's go out to lunch. And they go to Coq d'Or, which is a well-known French restaurant in London. He says, I'll drive. I'll drive in our red, my red Mercedes 300 SL. This is the king. Yeah. The distance between Claridge's and Coq d'Or is half a mile. Our time was 30 seconds. <laughs> <laughs> like he just wanted to show him the car. He says they, they arrive and there's nowhere to park in Stratton Street. So the king just stopped the car in the middle of the road and got out and started walking off. He said, the king looked at me and I, my face was like, you can't just like leave a car in the car. And he says, oh, don't worry. One of my chauffeurs will park it. And pick it up. And with that, a Mark 7 Jaguar pulls up with four guys in it. One gets out, gets in the Mercedes and drives it away. <laughs> That's service. So he says, during the lunch, they get along like a house on fire. The king says, I want you to come with long drives. So they start going on these long drives through the countryside of London yeah. and England, having a great time. He then takes him to go and drive at the circuits yeah. and starts teaching the king how, how to drive. drive. How and he drive. says the king was great, great driver, listened, knew what was doing, never missed a point. He said one time we're going around and the king spun the car because they were both sitting in the car and lost it completely. And he said a wet track and we spun round and round and round and round for ages. And then when we finally came to the end, he says, see, Duncan, I've kept the engine running. <laughs> This is gold. So he remembers one time, though, that he's in London with the king and there's a Colonel Kasim there who ends up becoming the ruler of Iraq. King Faisal's telling Duncan that he's bought a flying box car, big plane, cargo plane, so he can transport his Mercedes 300 SL from Baghdad to Syria. He says, because the roads are not very good between Baghdad and Beirut, not good enough to allow me to drive the Mercedes fast. 
So when I go to Syria, I fly and my car flies also because I don't like to be without my Mercedes. <laughs> That's why I bought this plane. And Duncan says, I saw Kasim's eyes flash with anger and members of the King's entourage all exchanged like glances between each other. And he went home and said to his wife, something's going on behind the King's back. Right. And Kasim, he said, is a man to be reckoned with. And he sort of warned Faisal and Faisal said, poor Mad Kasim, a good officer but slightly crazy. Now, at this point, the king is like coming over to Duncan's house for dinner. Yep. Like they're really good friends. He writes to Duncan and Angela and said, do you want to come over for Christmas in my new palace that I'm building in Baghdad if it's ready in time? Duncan writes back, if the new palace is not ready, I'm sure we will be comfortable in the old one. (laughs) So Pfizer loves it. He says, I can't come this Christmas because we've got all the family coming. And Pfizer says, don't worry at all because, you know, come at another time. But he's assassinated before that happens. Wow. And finally the royal family after the king has died, the royal family is overthrown by Colonel Kasim, overthrew the monarchy. And Duncan was on it. And Duncan reckons he knew before that this was on it. He's very sad about that happening. Colonel Kasim was later overthrown by the Ba'ath Party with a certain Saddam Hussein. Yes, yes. So that was the way of the thing. Goose gander, something like that. So just like an amazing life, do you think about it? Like suddenly he's like hanging out with the top Just one big adventure. One big adventure. In 1994, Duncan, 74 years old, and he's discovered that he has lung cancer earlier on and he finally slips into a coma and actually passes away at 74 of lung cancer. People are just amazed that he's kind of made it to 74, yes. even his family, because he lived just the fullest life, yeah. always out. No, always he would, he should take 74. 74 a for great him, innings. great innings. Tony Rolt lives on till 2008. He's a very private man. He didn't. He was very charming and had a great presence, people said, and a real dignity, but so he never did personal publicity. Yes. He never saw trying to escape from Colditz as something heroic, so he's constantly asked to be interviewed about it yes. he was constantly invited to cold at three unions and he never went his quote about it was escaping was not a game nor was it fun it was a duty he did however attend f1 races for the rest of his life until he died in 2008 at 89 years old okay and this is where both of these men are of an era of racing that doesn't exist anymore mm-hmm. pre-war yes all this sort of stuff when he died at 89, he was the last surviving driver from the inaugural World Championship Grand Prix held at Silverstone. He was also the last pre-World War member of the prestigious British Racing Drivers Club, having been elected there in 1936. And that drew a close on this amazing era of racing. Incredible. Two absolute giants. Yeah. Two amazing men. Two very brilliant lives well lived amazing and then different as you say different personalities that combined i'm off to a turkish bathhouse (laughs) i just feel i think we know it's the only way to celebrate it's what they would have wanted i think we go get order brandy (laughs) and sit in a turkish bathhouse right that's right up there that's one of my favorite (laughs) stories i love both of those men and uh uh, king faisal too by the way i'm a bit sad about that (laughs) um Once again, you've done it. Uh, You've blown my mind. Thank you, Titus O'Reilly. And ladies and gentlemen, now we have a short outtake from our bonus episode we do every week from the Bazaar Plus membership program. I've been thrown out of the Sultan of Brunei's Hotel Suite. It was in Singapore. (laughs) You've got to tell the story now. Uh, So I was over there for the Bollywood Oscars 
And, of course, the Australian cricket team were there because the Indians love cricket and movies. You've got a few stories from this weekend. Actually. Yeah, some. <laughs> some but I don't so, know this one. I know some yeah. of the other. So you're burying, you've, if you've got, you're able to go to this weekend for several anecdotes. <laughs> it was a wild weekend even for you. It was. So we're in Singapore and uh, the cricket team was there. Went to Singapore Cricket Club. How amazing is a Singapore, we could do something on the Singapore Cricket and that, Club. So that was Bollywood and? And the cricket team were there. The Australian cricket team. The Australian team. cricket team were there. So also the Indians losing their minds because their favourite things in the world are move, have the Indian movie stars and, the, and the cricketers. And the Australian uh, cricketers are huge over there. And they're there. huge over there. But I went to, this is what I learned about the Singapore Cricket Club, that after, I think it was the Second World War, yeah. when all their members came home, and had been shot at yeah. and had been fighting the war, the Singapore Cricket Club wouldn't let any of them back in till they'd paid their outstanding bar bills. <laughs> <laughs> How great is that? They'd kept the records. But anyway, so whatever, whatever, I was in the, well, I was in the Sultan of Brunei's hotel room. Yeah. Anyway, Brett Lee was there, and, you know, Brett Lee always carries his guitar because he loves playing guitar. Love, yeah. Anyway, all I remember, we'd had a couple, and Brett Lee was facing up to bat with his guitar and I was running in off the long run and bowling <laughs> like kiwi fruits and anything I could find from the fruit bowl at him. And uh, there's a bit of chin music. There's a, <laughs> there's a bit of head high stuff. <laughs> with, it was body line. With security go, I think it's time you guys got out. Got out of there. So. <laughs> Me and the Sultan have history. Yeah. <laughs> Not the only salt I've mentioned you in history with. Nah, it's all, it's all in my book. <laughs> That's a short clip from our bonus episode each week for members who join our Bazaar Plus program. If you're interested in signing up to that and hearing more of it, simply go to the link in the show notes or go to bazaarplus.com.